Thank you so much, Jackie, for leading us in worship. It's always a pleasure and joy to have you here. Uh, and uh, so we are going to be back in the Gospel of John, and I uh, hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving, and um, I bet you all are about as tur- tired of turkey as I am. <laughs> you know, my, uh, we, we had a dinner Wednesday night, too, and my dad was like, okay, should I make turkey? And he's like, no, I'm not going to do that because you're going to have so much. I'm like, what? Why not? Like, it's, it'll be fine. And then <laughs> I get to, because uh, we went to Texas to celebrate with our family there, and uh, we did it on different days. So we had turkey on Thursday and on Friday and on Saturday, and I will be happy if I don't eat turkey again for the next year. So that's, yeah, I'm, I'm turkeyed out. So anyways, I'm, I'm thankful to be here with you guys. I'm thankful to be in John. Uh, and, and can I just say, I'm so thankful for y'all as a church. Um, I, something that I've just observed over the last few months is just how loving and caring and kind you all are and i just i've loved not only getting to be your pastor but also getting to be a part of this church again so i just want to say thank you uh for y'all and also the kind words that you said to ryan scantling about me (laughs) whenever uh he was talking about how long i had been here i was listening on and i could hear in the background go oh he's only been here four months and he was like oh wait is that a good thing or a bad thing (laughs) so i just i thought it was funny the way y'all responded but i just seriously i'm so grateful my wife is grateful. Uh, I, I hope that if you're visiting with us, you can just feel the love from this congregation too. So um, anyways, we're going to be in the Gospel of John. And if you're new with us or you, you haven't been in for a while, because trust me, it has been a while since we've been in the Gospel of John, uh, I'm going to give us a little bit of a recap of what's happened so far. So um, so far in the Gospel of John, we're going to be in verse, or not verse 5, chapter 5 this morning. And so far in the Gospel of John, here's what's happened. So uh, at the very beginning of this series, we looked at the reason why John wrote this book. And the reason why John wrote this book was that you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that He is the Messiah. The reason why this gospel exists, the reason why it's different than all the other ones, is so that you would believe. So he recognizes that not everything that happens in Jesus' life is recorded in this book. Not everything you read in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are in this book. But the things written are there so that you would see who Jesus is and believe. And so we looked at why John wrote this book. But then we got into John chapter 1. And John chapter 1 gives us both kind of a a summary statement of of how this book is going to go. And then um, it gives us an introduction to John the Baptist and Spoiler alert, Jesus dies and is resurrected uh, for our sins. So if you don't know what happens in the, the book, that's what happens. Uh, but we get the summary statement. He kind of walks through what's going to happen in this book. And then we, we see John the Baptist. And then after John the Baptist, we see how Jesus's ministry begins and John the Baptist's ministry begins to end. And some might think that that is something to grieve for. And some of John's disciples were upset about that. But John the Baptist was excited about it because it's the whole reason why he had his ministry in the first place. And then we're introduced to the first of the seven signs that Jesus gives us in this gospel that point to Jesus's equality with God and his journey to the cross for his sacrifice for our sins. And then we had John chapter three and John chapter three walked us through this conversation he has with Nicodemus, how in order to become a Christian, you have to be born again. It's not just walking an aisle. It's not about saying a prayer. It's not about going to church or saying, you know, the right thing. 
but it's truly about being born again and being made brand new. That's what it means to become a Christian and to become a Christ follower. And so he had this conversation with Nicodemus. And then we get the most famous verse in all of scripture, John three sixteen: for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that those who believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And then we spent John chapter four, looking at the conversation between Jesus and the woman at the well and the faith of the royal official. And then from that story of the faith of the royal official and the second sign, we spun off and talked about genuine faith. And we talked about the genuine faith of a lot of different people in the Old Testament. And we could have continued to go on, guys, but at some point we got to come back to this book. And, and I felt that this is a great season for us to return back into the Gospel of John. So with all that being said, if you got your Bibles, turn to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, and I really struggled with what to call this this morning because a lot happens. But what we're going to be looking at this morning is trying to figure out how do we go from John 4 and everything happening in early John, where Jesus is healing people, making himself known, to then being put on the cross and people yelling, crucify him. How do we go from Jesus being seen as I guess for the Pharisees, a little bit of a pain in their side to someone that they needed to get rid of. There had to have been something that happens that causes the break in that relationship. What happened to cause such enmity with Jesus? And so one of the things we have to remember too is in the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John largely takes place in the week before Jesus is crucified. So in looking at that and understanding how that works, let's look at this passage this morning together. John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the, by, by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew he had already been there for a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, the man who said to me, take up your bed and walk. He was, or it was he, they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn and there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered him, My father is working now until now, and I am working. Now verse 18, this is where the, the core of the conflict is between the Pharisees and Jesus. It's this right here. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God, his own father, making himself equal with God. Will you pray with me?
Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you uh, for the time that many of us had last week. God, whether we were, we were off and were able to enjoy some time off work or uh, just the normal chaos of life. And God, I uh, pray that we were able to enjoy time with family for those who were able to. And God, I also know sometimes those, the, having those dinners and, and going to see family you haven't seen in a while, God, can be really difficult. Or even for some, it could be a very lonely season. So God, I just pray that who, wherever people fall into here this morning, God, that they would continue in a spirit of gratitude, Father, to you. God, who, who gives us the breath to breathe. God, who sent your son to die for us. Father, a death that we deserve. And God, I pray that as we look to this passage this morning, and God, as we look to this incredible miracle that you performed, God, that you would just help us to see your character in this. God, that you would help us to see your intentionality in this. And God, that you would help us to see Father, where wrongful attitudes lie. God, that we wouldn't find our hope in superstition or find our hope in worldly things, but God, that our hope would rest in you and you alone and that our attitudes and what we love would reflect that. So God, I thank you for today. Father, I thank you for all that you do. It's your son's holy and precious name I pray. Amen. So we're, we're going to be looking at what I'm going to call a breaking point between the Jewish leaders and Jesus. And I, again, I kind of struggled what to call this sermon because technically it's kind of two different things happening, but one stirs on the other. So we're just going to call it the third sign because that's what kicks all this off. But uh, when we look at this breaking point, we also see that this is the third of the seven signs we find in the Gospel of John. And the purpose of a sign is to point to something greater. When we were driving back from Waco, Texas and into Dallas, I again counted like 11 signs for Bucky's. And guess what? They changed the signs. Like, I don't know what kind of budget they have to change those billboards, but they're always hilarious. I always love driving by them and know, y'all, I didn't get to stop at Bucky's this trip. I was pretty sad about it. I know I was heartbroken, but that's all right. We, we needed to get home and, and uh, I can always go back during Christmas. So, um, Signs point to something greater. And this sign, although seemed a little bit small in terms of what happens compared to a lot of the other things that Jesus does, it is hugely significant to his life because, because this sign is what started the conflict and started Jesus's journey to the cross. And every sign we looked at so far, there had been something that we had learned about God and about Jesus with every sign and what would happen to him later on. And each of these signs point him and push him to the cross. And this sign in particular really begins this snowball effect that we see in the last week of his life. And so when we're looking at this passage, this is kind of going to be structured in two uh, different, different smaller sections. The first is we're going to look at is the third sign, which is the first eight verses. Uh, and the second is we're going to be looking at the conflict. We're going to be looking at, at the, this conflict between the, the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, and we're going to be looking at Jesus and why the conflict was even there in the first place. So let's look at the sign first. So if you got your Bibles, we're going to stick with verses 1 through 8 and a little bit of verse 9 as we get into this. So what's happening is Jesus returns to Jerusalem for a feast, and then he goes to a pool called Bethesda. 
Now this pool was, was covered with and, and surrounded with these different, uh, I would call them really high-end tents, like these, these huge pillars with, with roofs to keep people uh, covered for long periods of time. And the people who were there were described as invalid, or a, another word would be disabled. So, you know, in looking at this verse, uh, if you've got your Bibles and you look at your Bibles, depending on what translation you use, you'll notice something. So I use an ESV and mine goes from three to five, meaning that something's going on. Why is there a number that is skipped? What, where's the, where's the, because in our Bibles, you know, one, two, three, four, four is the next number. If you use a KJV or NK, NKJV, you'll notice that verse four is there and there's a little bit of verse three. So some of you may be thinking, okay, what's going on? And maybe some of you have the ones that have it in like a bracket, which that's actually pretty cool if it does have it in there. But anyways, so some of you may be, may be having this verse omitted. Some of you may have the end of verse three and verse four, and some of you may have it in brackets, but okay, why is that? What's the significance of that? Why is it that this verse is omitted in some of the new, more modern English translations? So here's the verse in question in the New King James Version. So looking at the end of verse three, then it says, waiting for the moving of the water for an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in after stirring up the water was made well, whatever disease he had. So the reason why this is omitted or given as a footnote in more modern English translations, it is because it has been discovered that as we've obtained more copies of the new Testament and we get closer to the date when the Bible was originally written or when the new Testament was originally written, biblical scholars have found that those words were missing from the gospel of John. So they concluded that they were not written by John, but therefore they were written later on by somebody else giving in some context to verse seven, because when you read verse seven, it says in, in verse seven, I'll read it for you guys. So you know what we're talking about. The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool where the water was stirred up. And while I'm going down another steps in before me. So if you're, if you're reading this, you're like, okay, well, why would he need to go into the pool? What's, what's the point of the water being stirred up? If you were alive at this time, you would have known the urban legend to this pool. You would have understood why he was there waiting in the first place. But if you're not from this time or from this era, you don't necessarily know why, or unless you're a historical, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, someone who loves history a lot, then maybe you already know that. But for the vast majority of people, they, they, they would have known that at that point, but maybe not now. And so John didn't really feel necess necessary to explain why people would go to this pool. So someone later on, as they were dispersing the New Testament text, wrote that in as a footnote. And so as we've discovered thousands of copies of the New Testament and fragments of the New Testament, biblical scholars have concluded that those words were not written by John. So that's why some of your Bibles don't have it. Some of them are asterisks. Some of them are in brackets. And, but some of them do keep it in it. Now, does that mean that your Bible is broken and you need to take it back to the store or online or wherever you got it or put it back in the seat back in front of you? No. Whether your Bible has it or doesn't have it doesn't make one better than the other. Ultimately, our Bibles are English translations of the original text, and we try to get as close to the truth as possible while also maintaining the ability to read and understand God's word. And I believe there's beauty in both the KJV and the ESV and everything in between. 
And so just because your Bible has it or doesn't have it doesn't make one superior to the other. doesn't mean your Bible's broken. But I really felt like we had to talk about this at least for a minute before moving on because you may be reading it and going, Dustin, why do you keep skipping that? But that's why it's not there. Basically, biblical scholars have come to the conclusion it was not written by John. It was a footnote to give context to the passage. So that's, that's that. So we're going to go back to the, to the uh, uh, sermon now. I just, I, at first I was going to give this allegory of like a tour bus that has to stop to change the tire real quick. But really, it's not a huge thing, but it is important for us to understand why are some Bibles, why do they look different than others? But anyways, so Jesus is walking through this crowd of people and he finds this man who was paralyzed for 38 years. Now, he wasn't at the pool for 38 years, but he was there for quite a while. And so he finds this man, then he asks him this question. He asks, do you want to be healed? Now, for us, that seems like a really silly question. Like, why else would this man who can't move be at a pool that supposedly heals you under this awning for an extended period of time? It seems rather silly. Why would Jesus ask that question? But his question was intentional. Because there are some people who want to be in a situation where they live in brokenness. Like there, this man, yeah, he says that he can't get into the pool, but is that the truth? Or is he in a position where he, he likes where he is? He likes living in brokenness. Maybe he's getting free food and free shelter and everything he ever wanted. Maybe he's being cared for and taken care of, and he sees no reason to get out of the situation he's in. But Jesus asked this question with intentionality. One, to know what the man's going to say, which it's Jesus, so he knows what he's going to say, but two, to also draw that out of him. Why is he there? Why is he in a state of brokenness, and why is he seeking healing from this pool? And so this man tells him, He says that I have no one to go into the pool when I'm going down. And then Jesus tells him to take up his bed and walk. Now, here's the cool part. Hey, Jesus didn't go to the water and take some with his hand and splash it on the man. Jesus didn't carry him into the pool or call on an angel of the Lord to come down, which, by the way, angels were terrifying looking during during the Bible. So I can't imagine that sight would have been something that it would have been. I would, I would call pleasant and pretty scary. You know, there's a reason why angels in the Bible would tell people don't be afraid whenever they appear to them because they didn't appear like human beings with halos around their head. Like media would cause you to believe they were actually kind of terrifying for us in image. But God used them for incredible things. But when we look at this, Jesus didn't take him into the water. He didn't bring the water to him. There was nothing about the water that healed this man. Instead, Jesus simply told him to take up his bed and walk. And so he did. This man was healed. Now, this man wasn't faking it, right? You don't lay in, in the kind of despair that, you, that this man was in for years to fake it. He truly was invalid. He truly couldn't move. He truly was broken in some way, shape, or form. But Jesus healed him right there on the spot, not using the water, not buying into any superstition, but literally just telling him to get up your bed and walk. And the man was healed. Now, what can we learn from this? Because there's a lot of things that we can learn. The first is that the man's hope for healing was in superstition. This man believed in this legend that an angel of the Lord would come down to the water, stir it, and the first person to get in the water basically wins healing, right? 
One, we don't really see that happening in other places in Scripture. And two, that's not a normal angel's MO. But anyways, this man believed it so much that he decided he's going to stay right where he is in hopes that he can get into the water. And it tells us there's hundreds of other people there too, waiting for this to happen. I mean, imagine like a crazy Black Friday sale, but it could change your life immensely. And there's thousands of other people there, right? Like it's, it's, it's a, a hope that for, for this doesn't have a conclusion. It's at the end of the day, in all reality, it's a legend. It's a superstition. But the question I have for you this morning is that, is your hope in a superstition or is it in Jesus? Because yeah, you're not waiting by the, the pool of Bethesda to get healed, but maybe you're someone who is, is waiting on a new job or a new relationship to fix your life. Maybe you're, you're somebody who spends all your money trying to either, either buying a bunch of lottery tickets, hoping that you're going to win, or you're on all these websites signing up for all these, uh, what's, what's, what's the, not, not, uh, surveys, but the like sweepstakes, hoping that, okay, if I get this, this is going to change my life. And yes, I'm, I'm guilty of that too. I did, uh, uh, you know, sign up for the HGTV dream home sweepstakes, but now I hope is not whether or not I, I get that or not. My hope is in Jesus, but the problem is I think so many of us put our hopes and our dreams and our aspirations in things that are worldly and things that are honestly superstition. Maybe we're hopeful that if we, you know, get the right job or get the right relationship or get in with the right people, or maybe we go to church enough and then our lives will automatically be fixed and be great. But Jesus never promised earthly comfort. He promises eternal hope. And this man's hope was not in Jesus at the time. It was in a body of water that supposedly may or may not heal him. And so for us, we, we have a lot of things in our own lives where we put our hopes in where it shouldn't be. Things are going to fail you. Superstitions and legends are going to fail you. Sports teams that you love are going to fail you. And I say that as a Hogs fan, right? My Rangers won. That's great. But, you know, everybody else I, I, I follow loses. But that's all right. My hope is not in a team. You know, as much as I love my wife, my hope and my, my, my hope for eternity is not in her. It should never belong to her. It's in Christ. It's not in my kids who I love dearly. But my hope is not in them and it's in Christ. Because everything in your life at some point is going to fail you one way or another. They're going to disappoint you. You're going to fall short. But Jesus never does. And he is where your hope should lie. That doesn't mean that you can't enjoy those other things, right? It doesn't mean you can't cheer on the Razorbacks and hope they'll win. It doesn't mean you can't enjoy time with your family or with your kids or with those around you or, or seek a good job or seek a good career or uh, good housing or even, you know, put your name in for the HDTV dream home and see what happens. Like, but what I'm saying is your hope and your aspirations should not lie in those things. Because when it does, it's going to fall short. And everything in this earth, everything in your life now will not come with you in eternity. And so this man, his hope was in a healing from superstition. But then Jesus came into his life and completely changed all of that. And the next thing we need to that we can learn from this is that Jesus' redemptive work is better than any superstition. It's real. 
right? Again, Jesus didn't go through and get a cup of water and throw it on the guy or toss him in the water. He probably totally could, especially with his disciples. They had enough, enough guys to make it work. They could have guarded the pool. They could have had like a, like a conveyor belt line of people to throw him in, but they didn't. Jesus's hope was, or Jesus's healing was real, right? We don't know how many people actually became healed from this pool or actually got better, but we know that people that Jesus came into contact did get better. They did get healed. Their lives did change and they were made brand new. And so this man received Jesus's healing. But what is significant else about this story? And this is probably the thing that is most significant that I see in here is that Jesus sought this man out. Did you notice what happened at the beginning of this passage? At this pool of Bethesda, there were five roof colonnades, and they were, and these things were massive, by the way. There were probably hundreds of people here. But Jesus passed through all these people and was seeking after this one guy. Now, Jesus could have gone through and healed anybody on the way or talked to somebody else, but Jesus had purpose and intention to find this specific man. It wasn't like me when I tripped on that wire earlier, right? It's not like Jesus was walking around until he tripped over somebody and then decided to heal them. But, but rather, Jesus sought this man out. In the same way that, that Jesus sought this man out, Jesus seeks you out too. In the same way that Jesus sought after this man, began that conversation with him and was intentional in saving his life, Jesus does the same thing for us too. Jesus is God in the flesh who was sent here on this earth, who lived a perfect life, who lived as a servant for others, who died on the cross for you and for me. And when it comes to becoming saved, when it comes to becoming a Christian, the Holy Spirit works in our hearts and softens us for us to receive the gospel. And you know who initiates all that? It's not you. It's not me. This man didn't initiate it. He didn't call for Jesus. He didn't go searching him out. It said Jesus came to him. And then when Jesus told him to get up and walk, he did. He was obedient. So for us, what I find in here, what I find is incredible, is that we serve a God who doesn't wait for us to come to him. He comes to us. And so if you're taking notes this morning, this is... The first part of all this, the third sign is that is your hope in superstition or in Jesus is that Jesus's redemptive work is real. It's not fake. And the last is that Jesus seeks us out. So now we're going to shift into the conflict and this is where things get a little hairy. So if you got your Bibles, verse nine, so it ends with this. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and he walked but then here is where the conflict starts. The second half of verse nine says this. Now that day was the Sabbath. This is where things go wrong. Everything about this was amazing and awesome and wonderful. But this is the part that's going to cause the religious leaders at the time to really throw a hissy fit. <laughs> I don't know if that's the right word, but that's just the thing that comes to my mind when I see the way they react. Jesus did this on the Sabbath. And this is a huge problem for the Pharisees. To them, observing the Sabbath didn't just mean resting on a day, but it meant following 39 very specific rules that they had got some of it from Moses' word and, and deciphering certain things, but some they added to themselves. And these 39 very specific rules, 
It, to break any of them was a really big deal, and to them was a blatant, disobedient spirit to God. And so one of these was that you're not supposed to lift or carry anything on the Sabbath. So what was this man doing? He took up his bed and he walked. So they questioned the man, and the man kind of pulls an Adam in Genesis. He, he begins immediately blaming somebody else for what had happened. He said, oh, hold on, it's not me. It was another guy. He told me to take up my bed and walk. At the time, he didn't know it was Jesus. And then later on, we see that he runs into the, the, Jesus, and Jesus you know, has a conversation with him, following up with him. Uh, see that you're well once more, so nothing may happen to you. But then this man goes back to the Pharisees and says, okay, it was this guy, it was Jesus who healed me. So this man immediately goes, he's not looking to do kind of what the Samaritan woman did and tell everyone about Jesus. Instead, he's kind of keeping these things to himself and then shifting the blame onto Jesus for what was happening. And then the Pharisees go to question Jesus. And he tells them that my father is working, so I'm working. And then verse 18. Again, this is where the conflict all lies. This is why Jesus was put on the cross in terms of the Pharisees doing so. Because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling himself, he's calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now we've, we've talked about this before. For example, in Philippians chapter 2, when, when it talks about um, how Jesus being equal with God did not account equality with God as something to be grasped, basically meaning that he didn't use his equality with God as an advantage in his life, right? When Jesus came and lived as a man, he truly lived as, as a man in terms of he was tired, he experienced pain, he experienced temptation, he had to eat and sleep just like we do, he grew weary. He experienced hardship and he suffered on the cross. Now, being equal with God, he could have bypassed all that, but he didn't. Instead, he walks through that and lives a perfect life regardless. And then when it comes to his, his equalness with God, this is something that we've seen in the Trinity. This is something that we've seen in the series that Jesus is God. His equality with him is there. We see it all throughout the Gospel of John and we're only five chapters in. But the Pharisees saw this as blasphemy, and now they see Jesus as a threat. So what is Jesus a threat to? Because Jesus had done nothing but great things. He had healed people, performed miracles, called others to repent and believe, and saved people from their sin. What could have been so wrong about Jesus? What's so wrong with that? If you're a Pharisee, if you're a religious leader, you literally have people that are following this man who's teaching a lot of the same things that you are, and they're, 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 people are growing to know the Lord and to love God. Why would you be mad about that? What's so wrong with that? Here's what was wrong. Because it wasn't necessarily what about Jesus was doing. It was about what Jesus threatened. And what was threatening to them was what made them want to kill him. So what was under threat? What was Jesus threatening these Pharisees? Or what was Jesus not threatening, but what was these Pharisees afraid to lose? Here's what the Pharisees were afraid to lose. Their power and control. Their power and control. I can hear Gladriel's words in the beginning of the Lord of the Rings echoing in my head when I read this passage because I, I, I hear this in the Pharisees' words every time they interact with Jesus. And in the very beginning of the movie, Gladriel says, nine rings were gifted to the race of men who above all else 
desire power. This is a struggle that people have had for centuries. This desire for power and to control their life. And maybe not in the way the Pharisees did, right? The Pharisees, they, they liked their authority. They liked where they were. They liked their status. But for many of us, we have a desire to control all aspects of our life. We want to control our relationships. We want to control our lives. We want to control uh, what happens to us and what doesn't happen to us. We have a huge natural desire to, to control everything in our lives. This has been a constant struggle for us. We want to be in control, but we are not our sovereign God. You can control everything that you want to control, but at the end of the day, God is God and we are just people. So what can we learn from this? What can we learn from this conflict, from what's happening with with the Pharisees and with Jesus? Well, the first thing that we can learn is what we celebrate and love shows a lot about the condition of our heart. Right? Let's let, I mean, let's look at the, with the way the Pharisees interacted with this man. Notice their first concern, right? When they see this man who is clearly healed from what just happened at the pool of Bethesda, their first issue was not that this man had been healed. Their first issue was that he was doing something he wasn't supposed to do on the Sabbath. He took up his bed and he walked. They were more concerned about the rules that he broke than the miracle that just happened. They were more concerned about the things that they had to control over rather than rejoicing at the change in this man's life. There was no rejoicing or healing or celebrating what Jesus did even after they found out who did it. Right? It could have been a misunderstanding. It could have been, hey, why are you carrying your bed around? Then they find out it was Jesus who did it. And going, oh, well, if that happened, then that, that's okay. We understand, and, and we're, we'll celebrate with you. Instead, there was further anger towards Jesus for doing those things on the Sabbath. And when Jesus explained what he did, there was no rejoicing in, in Jesus, no rejoicing in the healing, or no rejoicing in the fact that Jesus continues to show that he is clearly the Messiah. No. Instead, they wanted him dead. And you know, this isn't too far off from how some of us behave today. This isn't too far off how some of us behave when we see God doing things in someone's life, but we are more concerned with tradition or more concerned with things that we find as acceptable rather than what does Scripture teach and what does Scripture celebrate. For us, the things that, that we hold most dear to our hearts, the things that sit on the throne of our lives show in our actions and our attitudes. And so if our concern is more of the things that we control or the things that we love more than seeing other people come to know the Lord or seeing other people saved, then, then our priorities are all out of whack. Because Jesus is the one who should be sitting at the throne of our hearts, not other things or preferences or traditions. Now, does that mean that we should just completely disregard the Sabbath? No, but the Sabbath is meant to be a day for rest not 39 extra rules that you follow, but it rather it's supposed to be a day where you, where you rest and where you rest in the Lord and celebrate in Him. That's what the Sabbath is for. But these Pharisees, the Sabbath to them, for them was not about Jesus, it was about themselves. And so what's the second thing we can learn from this? The second thing we can learn is this profound truth that sent Jesus to the cross is that Jesus is God. This was the thing the Pharisees had the issue with. 
was that Jesus was saying that he was equal with God in his actions and what he was doing and being able to forgive sins and heal people. I mean, Jesus was displaying that he is clearly the Messiah and equal with God, but they wouldn't listen. And this profound truth is why we can put our hope in Jesus. This is why we can put our hope in him. And this is one of the core reasons why John wrote this gospel in the first place. If we go back to John chapter 20, 30 through 31, for example, this is what it says. Now, Jesus did many other signs, not in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. And by believing you may have life in his name. That is why John wrote this book. That is why over and over again, he is emphasizing that Jesus is God. That's why over and over again, he emphasizes how Jesus came to heal and save the lost. This is why over and over again, he shows that Jesus is the one our hope should lie in, not earthly, worldly things, because earthly, worldly things are going to fail you and they are not forever. But eternal life with Jesus is forever. So my question for you this morning is, where does your hope lie? Is it in superstition or legend? Is it in earthly or worldly things? Or is your hope in Jesus? And my hope is that you would put your trust in him today. Jackie, will you come up and lead us in a time of invitation as I pray? <laughs> Father, I pray that you would help us to recognize, Father, where our attitudes and where our hearts are bent away from you. God, I pray that you would help us to long for change in our lives. God, that we would seek to grow holy and God seek to grow more like your son and God I pray that you would help us to see this healing God as an example of how you pursue us God I pray that you would help us to see how how you loved us so much that father not only do you pursue us now but you sent your son then and God that he did all that he did and he did so out of love and grace and mercy for us and God, I pray that we would find where true hope should lie, not in the things of this earth, but God in of you. Because when we pass from this earth, Father, we want to spend eternity with you. God, where there's no tears and no pain and no suffering and no heartbreak. And God, that we can have hope in this life. Father, while we are here on this earth to not have to walk through it alone, because God, you've promised that you would walk with us through your Holy Spirit. And God, I pray for anyone in this room this morning, Father, that has questions about that. God, who's never put their trust or faith in you. Father, I pray that from seeing your word, God, that they would see why they should in the hope that truly belongs in you. Not in some pool in Bethesda. Not in a relationship or some dream job. But God, in you and you alone. So Father, I pray for this time of invitation. God, I pray that you would continue to work in the hearts of those here and beyond. It's your son's holy and precious name I pray. Amen.